0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church and it is my pleasure to welcome you. If you're a regular uh, church going, Woodburn Baptist Church person, gosh, I miss you so much. It is uh, going on the second month of this coronavirus distancing thing and I'm I'm totally against it. Uh, we're doing it. It's the way we love each other right now by protecting one another. But Shoot fire, I'm so so ready to be with you guys again. If you're a guest, if you're finding us online, on Facebook Live or YouTube, uh, it is an honor that you have found us. We can't wait when this is over and you can come and we can meet each other face to face. For now, open your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 20. I want to put in one more Easter message before we move on to something new next Sunday. I mentioned we're going into the second month of this thing. I never expected it to last that long. I honestly didn't. At the beginning, I thought for sure we'd be in church on Easter, and and now it's the Sunday after Easter. I really, really thought it'd be behind us. How are y'all doing? I mean, I'm just really asking you, because it's getting hard, and, and I'm not joking. It's really getting hard for some of us. I mean, at first, it was kind of fun, to to learn how to cook at home, which some of us hadn't done for a long, long time. It was kind of fun, you know, homeschooling the kids, learning to be a school teacher. Your teachers are being so very faithful to send you materials online and and FaceTime and Zoom meetings and all of that. We all got the hang of it. It was fun for a while. We'd sneak through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, and everybody would just kind of be really, really careful. And we thought we could do this for a little while, but it's just going on and on and on, uh, Tuesday night this week, I had my second anxiety dream, which I can, I can do. I had a long, long sleepless night. This is one of the ways my body deals with stress. I don't think anxious thoughts, but my body gets the stress. And uh, it was a long, long Tuesday night for me. What about you? If I were to ask you how you're doing, would you even tell me? I've seen your Instagram feed. By this point, I've seen everybody's Instagram feed, uh, actually. Uh, I've seen all the cute pictures of your kids, and I've seen your workout videos and, and all of that. If I was just judging by what you put in public, I would think that you're made for this. I mean, you are really, you know, winning the coronavirus, you know, home incarceration. I, yeah, I mean, you're doing great from all appearances, but, but, but how's it really going? I mean, how is it going? When we're at church, we always tend to have a happy face on anyway. If you are here Sunday after Sunday when we are together, uh, you're typically in the pew there and, uh, and you're grinning and shaking hands and you sit there with your Bible open in your lap and uh, it would seem like you don't have a care in the world. You know, in church, when we have a a public prayer meeting, I'll say anybody got a prayer request, we will pray for every gallbladder and colonoscopy from here to howdy. You know, but nobody ever really says anything personal. It's it's very rare to have anybody, any church person in church in, in a prayer meeting actually have a prayer request for themselves. It almost never happens that somebody says, "I'm struggling. I'm anxious." I'm depressed. Hardly ever hear anybody say, my marriage is in trouble. I don't know what to do with my kids anymore. I mean, and on and on and on it goes. These are just the things that you never hear. And my hunch is that's one of the reasons why the unbelieving world really just can't quite believe the church. Because we don't seem real. And this is why, more than anything, I love so much reading the Bible and reading the New Testament and reading of the the first disciples of Jesus. Because I'm telling you, these people, they don't try to be anything other than what they are. I mean, they just let it all hang out. And the Easter story is one of the places where you see that. They don't uh, pretend like at first that they weren't afraid. They don't pretend like at first that they even believed. I mean, they are right there with all of their doubt, with all of their fear, with all of their bewilderment. I mean, it's just all right there. There aren't any really, any cardboard saints in Scripture. These are real people as real as it gets. And, and, And so... When you read of them, how very unselfconscious they are, how very raw that their commitment is, I'm telling you, there's something about that that makes me want to be more like them. They're very imperfect, but what they are is perfectly committed to a process of transformation that turns these imperfect men and women into people who have an eternal impact. I mean, people who change the world. They're not perfect. And they have their doubts, and that brings us to our character today. His name is Thomas. Most people call him Doubting Thomas, although the Bible never calls him Doubting Thomas. That's the nickname we gave him. And it turns out you can learn a lot about faith from a man they call Doubting Thomas. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. Let's get the tail end of his story beginning in verse 19. Follow with me. That Sunday evening, The disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And and again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, he was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, We've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the following Sunday, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. I suppose the way I always picture Thomas is sort of from an image that I I carry in my head from art school way back in the day. This is a famous painting by a painter named Caravaggio, and this is a, a painting of this moment, this scene that we just read here in John chapter 20. This is Jesus clothed in white, and this is Thomas. And Jesus is at that moment where he says, Thomas, put your finger in into the wound in my side. And this is exactly what Thomas is doing. It's actually kind of horrifying the way he puts his finger right into that open wound. You can see the, the wounds in Jesus' hands. It's it's a striking picture of a man who's struggling to believe. Even when he sees, even when he touches, you can see the look on his face. It's, it's really something impossible to believe at the same time. It's true. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. And he's standing right there. Most of the time when people think of Thomas, this is the scene. This is the moment of his life. This is that the time he gets that nickname Doubting Thomas because he didn't quite believe it until he could see it, until he could touch Jesus with his own hands. Now if he's not shown in this way he's typically shown in another way this is a contemporary stained glass window but this is very very typical of the way thomas is typically shown in art tradition when you have the apostles usually that they've got a symbol with them so that you know who they are and the symbol for thomas is always this it's a spear Thomas holds a spear. Now, why a spear? To tell you the truth, the apostles all died for their faith. And so typically in art, Christian art history, the disciples are shown with the instrument of their martyrdom. That's how you identify them. And in Thomas's case, Thomas, at the end of his life, followed Jesus' commission. He was carrying the gospel into the land of India. And in India, Thomas was evangelizing, preaching Jesus, planting churches, and they killed him. He would not stop preaching. He would not stop proclaiming that Jesus is alive. He would not stop advancing with the gospel. And so they took a spear and ran it through him. That's how Thomas died. And that's how we always see Thomas pictured with the spear. It's the instrument of his martyrdom. You see, that's the thing right there. That's the thing I want you to think about. Because when you call him Doubting Thomas, I just want to remind you, that's not what the Bible calls him. Nowhere. Nowhere is he singled out for his doubting. Nowhere is he condemned. Not even Jesus rebukes him for his doubt. That's not a part of the story at all. But it's a part of the way we think of him. Now, what exactly does that mean? In my mind, it just simply means that we don't know him. In my mind, it simply reminds us all that that honestly, we always sort of fall short whenever we think we know enough about somebody to to name them or to begin to judge them. And that's sort of what brings us to, to, to Thomas. Nathan, help me out here. Thomas is a man who's forever remembered for that one moment of his life when his faith falters a bit, that one moment in his life when he says, no, I need to see, I I need to touch. But, 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 But the truth of the matter is, you are not what people call you. Thomas may have had a nickname, the nickname was Doubting Thomas, but honestly, although that's what everybody calls him, it's not exactly who he is, not even... In this moment, not in the moments before, in the Gospel of John when Lazarus was sick, do you remember that story? And Jesus uh, stands back and, and he doesn't immediately go to Lazarus, but then finally he gets up to go and all the other disciples are afraid because they know that what's awaiting Jesus when he returns to the city is death. But it's Thomas, it's Thomas in John chapter 11 who says, well, let's just all go die with him. Do you see that? Thomas was ready to die for Jesus way back then. It doesn't really sound like a doubter to me. Now, in this story that we're reading today, notice that Thomas is only asking for the very thing that everybody else got. They got to see Jesus alive. They got to touch his wounds. I mean, that was the story they all told him. We've seen Jesus. We touched His hands. We touched his side. And Thomas says, "Well, I'm going to need that myself. Do you see? He just wants what everybody else got. He's not singled out for a doubt. He's not more of a doubter than anybody else. None of them were true believers until they saw Jesus and touched His wounds. You understand what I'm saying? You are not what people call you. You are who Jesus knows you to be. It may be in your life that you've sort of been tagged for the worst season, the worst moment, the worst day of your life. Some of you right now, you struggle with with, with that that, that stain that's on your reputation, with that sin that went public and everybody knows. You're sort of stuck with the person you were back in school. You're sort of stuck with the memory of your first marriage or stuck with the days when you were addicted, the the days when you struggled. and, And people have a really, really bad habit of not forgiving and not forgetting. I just want to remind you that you are not what people call you, you are the person that Jesus knows you to be. You can call him Doubting Thomas all you want, but I'm here to tell you there's a whole lot more to his story. He doesn't really sound like much of a doubter to me. So as the story goes, the disciples on Sunday evening have, have heard the news of resurrection. This is Easter Sunday. That they've heard the news. That they've already heard it. In the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene has come back and she has seen the Lord. And Peter and John, they've seen the Lord. And people are beginning to tell these stories of, of the risen Christ. The disciples from Emmaus, they've seen the Lord. But at the very same time, here they are inside a room together with the doors locked because they're afraid. I mean, Jesus has conquered death. Their Lord, their Savior, he's alive. But here they are, huddled in darkness behind locked doors. They're afraid. They're afraid of what's going to happen next. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Honestly, it's amazing to know and to believe that Jesus is alive. But you have to also understand what that means. They seem to know that he's alive. They don't seem to know what it means. And since they don't know what it means, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do about it. They're just sort of stuck. And so here they are behind locked doors just meeting together. And and there's a lesson in that for you and me as well. It's that the news that Jesus is risen really isn't going to excite you until it becomes personal. You really have to know what it means to you. Personal. It's, it's, it's personal. It's got to be personal. Man, last Sunday there were probably more thousands of people hearing the Easter message proclaimed than any time before, maybe any time in human history. I know that Woodburn Baptist Church had more people hearing the message from this pulpit last Sunday on Easter than in any time prior in, in Woodburn's church history. I would say the same thing for all of us. It's amazing. So, a lot of people heard the message of Easter. A lot of people have heard that Jesus is alive. And a lot of people would probably say they believe it. The problem is, it's not personal. They don't necessarily know what it means to them. And I would ask you that question, do you know what it means to you? I mean, the fact that it means something to me, I'm a pastor. I mean, you just sort of dismiss that. And your grandma was very religious. It seemed to mean something to her, but it really doesn't seem to mean anything to you. And this is what I'm saying. That news, that that Easter joy that we were celebrating last week, some people just don't get it yet because they really haven't had that personal encounter with the living, risen Christ. They don't really know what it means to them. If that's who you are, if that's where you are, I just want to remind you that that's exactly where all of the disciples of Jesus were on that first Easter. I mean, that's where they end up, in a room behind locked doors. I mean, they've heard that he's alive, that they must begin to believe that he's risen, but they still don't know what that means. They don't know what to do about it. But while they're there, in a locked room, Jesus appears. I ain't got time to talk about this, but I love this. I love this, this, this glimpse at a resurrection body because I'm going to have one of those one day, and so are you if you believe. I'm going to have one of these bodies like Jesus has, and it's amazing. It's spirit, it's also sort of flesh, but it doesn't have to conform to the laws of, of physics, to gravity, to space and time, but it can. I, I love that. I love that you can touch him, you can hold on to him, he can eat. At the same time, he can pass through a wall. I love that. I love that because as he is, we shall be one day. That's the promise of the resurrection. And so they're gathered together and Jesus just appears, just appears in the middle of them. And he just says, peace, (laughs) peace. Oh my goodness, they must have lost their minds. Can you imagine? Like, they know he's alive. They know he's out there, up there, wherever he is. And all of a sudden, here he is. And he shows them his hands, shows them his sight, his wounds of crucifixion. And he implores them to believe, to believe. And then he tells them what it means. He lets them know that as the Father has sent me, I'm going to send you. You've got a mission now, and you're going to need the Holy Spirit for that. He breathes on him, and the Holy Spirit comes. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing moment. Problem is, Thomas isn't there. Thomas is not there. Where is he? I mean, where is he? You know, his whole reputation for all of time could have been different if he'd have managed to get his sorry behind the church that Sunday night. Right there. If he hadn't missed the meeting. But Thomas misses it. And because he misses it, he misses everything. Can you imagine the conversation in that coming week when everybody just keeps telling Thomas, we saw the Lord, we saw his hands, we saw his side. He's alive. And Thomas says, yeah. I'm going to need to see him myself. Where was he? Or for that matter, why didn't Jesus appear at a moment when everybody was there? I mean, that would be the polite thing to do. Why not just, I mean, I mean, Jesus obviously is Lord. He could have done this. I mean, he could have did this whole thing, you know, on Monday night when they're all going to be there. He, he, I mean, he could have just chosen a time to not leave anybody out. But Thomas is the only one not there. Why is he not there? But more importantly, why does Jesus appear when Thomas isn't there? Because he could have just as easily appeared when he was Thomas spends that whole next week, you know he's looking for Jesus. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. I mean, he begins to just pop up all over the place, everywhere but where Thomas is. Can you imagine being Thomas? I'm not in any way condemning this man for doubting. He just wants what everybody else seems to get. You understand? He wants to see the risen Christ. He left everything to follow him. He would risk his life for him. He loves Jesus. He just wants to see him. He longs to see him. And Jesus seems to show up everywhere but where Thomas is. If there's any lesson there, I think it's simply, you don't find Jesus, Jesus finds you. I know we use that language, you know, before I found the Lord, or, you know, I was six years old when I found Jesus, but you don't find Jesus. Jesus finds you. And as much as Thomas wanted to see there is in Christ, as much as Thomas needed to see and touch, there is that solid week when uh, Jesus doesn't show up for him. Why do you think that is? Very simply, I would just say it this way, Jesus always gives you and me and Thomas. He gives us what we need for faith. He knows what every single person needs. Beginning of this chapter, Mary Magdalene has her moment with Jesus. And at that moment, Mary continues to hang on to Jesus. And Jesus tells Mary, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't hang on to me. It's just a few verses. You know, he appears to Thomas and says, touch me. Understand, Mary has to learn how to let go. Thomas needs to touch. Jesus knows what each individual needs and he gives them what they need for faith. And Thomas needs this. I I can't explain it. I don't know his heart. I just know that if this is the way Jesus works in Thomas's life then this is what Thomas needs for faith. And maybe Thomas needs the extra 7 days, the extra week there for longing and desire. Maybe Thomas needs to learn how to reach for Jesus, how to how to look for Jesus, but one way or the other Thomas gets exactly what he needs for faith. Jesus will always give you what you need for faith. Thomas says, I just wanna see the wounds in his hands. I just wanna to touch, I wanna to put my hand in that wound in his side. Did you ever stop to think about how odd that is? Not just that Thomas seems fascinated with the wounds, the fact that Jesus' is perfect, glorified resurrection body has scars. Why? I want to think that on the other side of the grave, when I have my resurrection body, I want to think it is going to be flawless. For the first time in my life, you know, no varicose veins. You understand? I mean, I'm going to be flawless. I want to think that if, if, if God is remaking my body, this next one is going to be glorious. And Jesus' resurrection body, make no mistake, is glorious. It is perfect in every way, and it bears scars. Why does it bear scars? I had lunch with a guy one day. This is Kentucky, y'all. It's redneck. And, uh, and this dude's a redneck. And, uh, and uh, he was talking to me over lunch, and he, he told me about uh, this place on his belly, a big old scar where he got in a knife fight, and then he Talked about the place you know where he shot himself in the butt. And then uh, he said, now you know me. Now you know me. True story and, and truly. I, I guess this guy just felt like you know, preacher didn't gonna know him unless he knows something about his scars, because every scar has a story. And The scars that I pick up in the course of my my living, those scars tell the story of my life. You don't get to live a life on this earth and come out unscratched. And if Jesus, the Son of God, were going to come and become human and live a life like yours and mine, he can't get out of here without a scratch. His wounds tell the story Tell the story of how God came down to live a life like mine and a life like yours. And I'm telling you, if he didn't have scars, I'm not sure that he could know what it's like to be me. Jesus will bear his scars for all eternity. The book of Revelation talks about how in that final moment, in in, in all of heaven, that the worship is centered upon what? A lamb that was slain. For all eternity, that lamb bears the marks of its killing. Do you see that? Do you understand that? The only man-made thing in heaven will be those scars on Jesus. He will bear those scars for all eternity. Why does he do that? Isaiah chapter 53 says, by his wounds, we are healed. So just don't miss that. He will bear his wounds through all eternity. Do you understand? So that you don't have to bear yours. He will carry his, so you don't have to carry yours. So when Thomas says, I want to see those wounds, that's about continuity. It's got to be the same Jesus, the same Jesus that he walked with, the same Jesus that he knew, the same Jesus that he saw hanging on the cross, the Jesus that was nailed to the tree, the Jesus who had the spear driven through his side. Thomas said, I'm going to see those wounds, Because those wounds tell the story. Those wounds are identity. You understand? When you see Jesus' wounds, now you know him. So that next Sunday night, Thomas is there. Everybody's there. Once more, Jesus appears, just like before, just appears in the middle of the room. He goes straight to Thomas. I think it's kind of funny because he he's sort, of, sort of quotes Thomas. You know, Thomas said, you know, I'm going to put my finger here and put my hands there. And Jesus says, Thomas, <laughs> come on, Bubba, put your, put your fingers here. Put your hand here. Put your hand there. I mean, he knows exactly what Thomas said. He knows exactly what Thomas needs. The thing I don't know is whether Thomas actually goes through with the touching. It doesn't say, it just sort of says, once Jesus says, Thomas, put your finger here, look at my hands, put your hand into the wound of my side. Don't be faithless any longer, believe. All that we know at that point is that Thomas just cries out, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. You're saying, that's worship. That right there is worship. It's declaring that Jesus, that the crucified, crucified Messiah is Lord and God. He is the Lord. He is God. He's the creator. There's only one God, and this is it. This is Jesus, my Lord and my God. That confession of faith comes from the man you call doubting Thomas. My Lord and my God. I'll just just tell you, doubting has been a part of my faith story. I, I just don't believe things easily. I have a lot of questions to this day. A lot of questions. Growing up in church sometimes, I was given the impression that church is not a good place to ask questions. Church is a place for answers, understand We give answers here, but we don't ask a lot of questions. And I think it's another reason why the world sometimes doesn't trust us because we're really quick to tell everybody that Jesus is the answer, but we really don't want to hear anybody's questions. I've always had questions. And so when... You read a story like this, I mean, a man risen from the dead, Jesus, historical figure. Nobody doubts that he lived. There's historical evidence, as much evidence that Jesus lived as anybody else in the history. Jesus lived, he was a, a real person, a historical figure. Much of what we know in the Gospels has to be true. I mean, there's historical evidence for it, multiple sources. We know he lived, and we know he died. There are sources outside of Scripture that talk about the fact that Jesus was killed by Pilate. I mean, you know, it's there. It's historical. No reason to doubt that part. It's this part. The resurrection part. Understand, this is the gospel. This is the Christian faith. You take the resurrection out, and Jesus is no different than any other historical figure who lived and died. It's no different at all. It's the resurrection that causes us to say, my Lord and my God. It's the resurrection that causes us to be telling this story 2,000 years later. It's the resurrection that caused me eventually to get to the end of my questions and begin to let Jesus build faith in me. I believe this. With my whole heart, I believe this. I've got questions along the way. i still got questions, but I believe this. And one of the simple reasons that I believe this, just, just from a historical, a scientific, if you will, perspective, is that all of these people in this room this night, all of them, they walked out of this room saying that Jesus was alive. Now, there are those who say, well, yeah, because the early church made up the whole story. They just made it all up. They, they made up the story to keep the movement going, and the movement continues to go. It's all just built on a story that people tell. And if that story makes you feel better, you just believe the story. But, no, you don't understand. Everybody in this room this night, including Thomas, they walked out of this room saying that Jesus appeared, that Jesus is alive. And they died telling that story. Nobody dies for a story that they know they made up. No one, no one dies for something that they know to be a lie. So eyewitnesses. They saw him. They touched him. And they died for the truth of that. Man, there's a whole lot more in my life. And if I had more time, I I could tell you more. but, but, But that right there is really persuasive for me. There's something about Thomas even. The one that they call doubting Thomas. He said... I won't believe unless I can, I, can, I can put my hand on his side. It was a place where the soldiers drove the spear into the side of Jesus. When Jesus was still on the cross, they wanted to see if he was dead. Wanted to make sure he was dead they poked a spear in his side kind of the way you might you might you know kick an animal on the road to make sure that it's really actually dead you understand i mean they just want to make sure that, that that Jesus is dead they want to take him off the cross they want to speed up the process so they drive a spear into his side thomas said i want to i want to put my hand on his side for me that's just what makes it so amazing that Thomas died telling this story that Jesus is alive. I mean, Thomas died telling this story that there was were, there were this long week where he seemed to appear to everybody but him. Then finally on a Sunday night, Jesus appeared and he spoke to Thomas directly. He said, Thomas, come, touch me, feel me. It's me. You know it's me. Stop doubting and believe. I mean, Jesus spoke and Thomas told that story. He told that story. He would not stop telling that story until one day they took a spear and they drove it right through his side. He died with a wound, just like Jesus' wound. Talking about Doubt and Thomas here. I, I don't know what you're thinking right now. I, I, I can't see your face. I invite you to reach out to me. I, I invite you to find our church's website, WoodburnBaptist.org. F- find my email address there. Reach out to me. I, I would love to talk to you about that. I just want you to understand a few things. I want you to know that Jesus will give you all you need for faith. He will give you all that you need. That doesn't mean you still won't have some doubt left over. It doesn't mean that you won't still have questions. I've got questions. But you will have enough for faith. You'll have enough to believe. You'll have enough to commit yourself. Even the earliest disciples, when they first heard they knew it had happened. They just didn't understand what it meant. And until they understood what it meant, until it became personal for them, they didn't do anything about it. it just sort of stuck. And you've lived your life stuck how long now? I mean, you've heard this story, right? And you understand who Jesus is. D- do you believe it? Because if you believe it, I'm, I'm going to ask you to take the next step. Now I'm going to I'm gonna ask you to believe in Jesus with all your life. Not just to believe in your head to say, yes, I, I, I assent that that's true. No, not just believe with your head, but to believe with your life. For Thomas, that meant all the way to the end. I mean, he, he gave his life. That's what faith looked like for him. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. But I know that sooner or later when you truly begin to understand and, and believe and, and then believe to the point where you're ready to commit your life to this truth, I, I know that at that point, Jesus becomes very personal. At the end of this, Jesus says something very important. It's the end of Thomas' story. But the end of the Thomas' story, he actually mentions you and me. Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. That's me and you. We're not going to have the opportunity to, to, to be in the room with, with, with Jesus in the flesh like that. We're not going to be able to touch not this side of heaven. But he'll give us enough for faith. He'll give you enough for faith. Asking to stop doubting and believe. Believe not just with your head, even not just with your heart. Believe with your life. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I pray that right now, that person in the sound of my voice who is right on the edge of believing, Lord, but still not sure, not ready to commit, not ready to jump in, Lord, not ready to uh, surrender. I, I pray, Lord, that whatever it is that they're holding on to, whatever it is that they need, Lord, I pray that you will give them the grace, the mercy, the strength to let it go. Lord, there will be some questions still left over. There may be some doubts that come along, even with faith, Lord, but I pray that the men, the women, the boys and girls, and the sound of my voice, Lord Jesus, will hear the gospel message, will understand, Lord, the truth that you are living, that you are alive. Pray, Lord, that they'll come to understand what that means and what that means for them, for us personally. Lord, we know that faith itself is, something of a leap. It's it's something that doesn't really come from inside of us, Lord. Maybe faith itself is a gift that comes from you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith, Lord, that we may stop doubting and believe, and believe, Lord, with our whole life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the risen Lord and Savior. Amen.